think of the Jewish phrase, Becharta Bechayim, which means choose life. I put before you the blessing and the curse, therefore choose life. It's the first thing we should be reaching for when we're feeling stressed or in trouble, this idea of choosing life. How do I choose life in this moment? My guest today is Rabbi Margot Stein. Margot is a Reconstructionist rabbi. She is a marriage and family therapist. She is a dear friend and a colleague and a teacher. And uh, Margot is someone who I turn to as a real exemplar, not to put her up on a pedestal, but as a, just someone who has demonstrated in the hardest possible ways, in the most beautiful ways, what it means like to live a life of resilience, how to live through and face down some of the hardest things that life can throw at us and get up again to live um, not unchanged, but open to joy and open to connection. Margot, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Deborah, for having me today. It's really a delight to be with you. I wonder if you feel comfortable um, sharing a little bit about your your personal story and you know what is behind the introduction that I gave to mm -hmm. our listeners. So what's behind that is uh, the tragedy that happened to me, and of course, so many people are dealing with difficult uh, and challenging life circumstances. But what happened to me was that my son was diagnosed with a rare form of pediatric sarcoma in 2011, and he died in 2015. So the four years really that we spent fighting for his life uh, changed me forever. And saying goodbye to him was certainly the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Yes, I mean, it was, um, it was, um, you know, it was, it was an honor to have opportunities to support Arya and you and your family when you were going through it and always amazing to hear about the grace and the um, and the relationships that you, all of you centered at every step of the way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I think that, that everyone uh, in the college and in my my life was incredibly supportive. One of the difficulties was it was happening in New York. He was treated at Sloan Kettering. And so we were running back and forth frantically between Philadelphia and New York in order to manage both sides of our lives, you know. And, um, and his treatment was extremely intense. He was um, 20 when he was diagnosed. He was 24 when he died. And um, trying to save the life of someone like that is, uh, you know, is an enormous undertaking. And we had incredible doctors at Sloan Kettering. And I also went to work um, on the computer to learn everything I could about rhabdomyosarcoma and about uh, treatments that would be possible and other practitioners around the world who might have something else to offer. Right. So it was an intense time of uh, really all hands on deck trying to save the life of a young man. Yeah. So, and you're, I mean, once a rabbi, always a rabbi. It's one of the great, um, mostly honors and sometimes challenges of the work that we've chosen. And when Mark, we were in school together, 
but my sense was that that, that was the, at the forefront of your life, you know, except for the brief interludes when he was in remission or the cancer was under control. And did you feel like the rabbinical, um, your rabbinical persona or your rabbinical role receded or was it, did it inform? So of course the public part of me receded. I had to spend some heart to heart time with dear friends, um, figuring out what I could and couldn't do in the rest of my life, right? And learning how to set those limits and say, I'm sorry to the families I was serving at the time and the students I was teaching at the time and to say, you know, I'm pulling back from those activities in order to concentrate on this. But the rabbinic part of me was very much a part of my internal support system and how I understood my life as being somehow guided by the hand of God. And if that was the case, then this too had to be guided and I had to keep praying and I had to keep listening and had to keep looking for the answers that I needed in order to know what the next step was. So there was continuity, even as, even as your life turned in such unexpected ways. <clears throat> well, for me, there was, I mean, for me, I, I just, I, I mean, I remember my mantra was, I don't want to have any regrets. So, you know, no regrets, no regrets, no regrets meant that even though I was might be exhausted, that I, you know, would do the thing that needed to get done because I didn't want to regret the next day that I hadn't done it. And so I really kind of was guided by my internal sense of what I, you know, needed to do and what I would regret. And somehow that framing kept me, you know, gave me energy, right, gave me enough strength to keep going even at times when I wanted to, you know, give up. And I, yeah. I was never able to give up, nor did I want to give up. But I'm just saying sometimes you have to. Right. Your body reaches, maybe your yeah. spirit, but your body just reaches the limit then. Yeah. So. Yeah. So this was a spiritual journey for me because mm -hmm. of my, perhaps because of my own inner um, attraction to the spiritual journey and my status, you know, as a seeker of God, but also uh, my training as a rabbi certainly helped me to keep this on the spiritual journey and to keep my eye on the, on the journey that was happening for my son as a, not just a physical being, but also as a spiritual being. Mm -hmm. So I'm aware, and I, I'd like to ask you to share with our listeners that when in the aftermath, the seeking healing and as much wholeness as possible for Arya was such a consuming and also, you know, coming through for your other children and your, and, and your partner, like was so, and your parents, like, you know, that was so consuming right. when you, when he, he crossed over and that meant mm -hmm. your entire family crossed over into a new reality. When you were ready to look up, I'm aware that you, it's not that you turned away from the rabbinical piece, but you turned into something new. You turned into the, the training to become a therapist. That's true. Well, first things first, which is after Arya died and I um, spent a certain amount of time just in deep grief and mourning, um, the college was the first place to welcome me back and to make sure I had a place to come. And so I was able to come and be among our, our Hebra, our peers and teach. And the teaching I did in those years was incredibly powerful and, um, and, and dear to me and the so students. So, so, so you, you were teaching rabbinical students. So. Yes. So I was at the college teaching rabbinical students. I was actually teaching music and liturgy and prayer. And having just spent four years in very intense prayer, I felt like I also knew something about the internal process of connecting with prayer. And uh, so that was very, very important. But along the way, uh, I did have a friend who was battling for the life of her daughter. 
And I found that while she was an inspiration to me to keep going in the battle for uh, life and for treatment, she also said I was an inspiration to her because of the strength that I brought and the creativity that I brought to the, the search for cure and to not taking no for an answer and standing up to authority and all the things that needed to happen. And I often found uh, in our long walks and talks together that we would be giving each other advice. But one day she said to me, you know, my daughter and I both feel that you would be an amazing therapist. And I said, you know, it's so funny you should say that because I had been thinking at one time in my life to go back to school and become a family therapist, but the time was never right. But her saying that really dropped that seed in and it began to grow and I began to see a way forward. And the way forward was in fact, to go back to school and become a marriage and family therapist. And Council for Relationships here in Philadelphia has a clergy track. So they really do specialize in helping rabbis make the transition to becoming therapists, whether the rabbis just use that as part of their pulpit responsibilities or they transition as I did into clinical work. And so that was the place for me. And I, and I started my journey by, you know, became becoming a student again. And it gave me a whole new, a whole new approach to my grieving process and a whole new way to mourn and to grow and to deepen. I think I just want to, I just want to share with our listeners that I saw you a couple of weeks ago, right? When you had completed your training and, and, you know, and, we, and we're having this conversation in the time of COVID-19 when we're really masked and everything. And it's so, you know, we miss each other's full faces and smiles, but over a mask, your, your eyes were just emitting, like you, you, you were shining out light and you said, I finished, I finished. And it was just, and, and, you know, to me, it was like, just to, first of all, to see anyone shine is just a blessing. And I, I really, I can, I have seen you, I think at the lowest of the low moments at, you know, yeah. at, at your son's funeral and to see yeah. you shining out light with joy and excitement about what comes next. I mean, I've said this to you before, I'll keep saying it, it just was, it was such a bomb to my soul, Margaret. It was <laughs> so enlivened and so excited. Yeah, thank you, Deborah. You know, the, the idea that I actually made it through and made <laughs> it to graduation. Our graduation was on Zoom like everybody else's graduation this year, but uh, that we did it and that I, I made it through this process was, you know, just a tremendous thrill. It's great. So it's thank great. you for sharing in that with me. Yeah, it was, it was, I'm so yeah. glad to be a little part of it. So I'd love to ask, um, drawing from your rabbinical work, drawing from your marriage and family therapy training, drawing from your life experience, like what's a framing that you would bring to, you know, to offer to our listeners, like, uh, you know, from, from all of those resources about uh, ways to cultivate resilience? Mm -hmm. So the word I would uh, bring up here is the word practice, right? We have to practice cultivating resilience the same way we have to practice yoga and we have to practice voice lessons and we have to practice kindness and compassion, right? We aren't, we aren't innately always able to access those things. We aren't always able to, to just be compassionate, but we do have to practice and kind of approximate it and approach it and dance around it and try it on and have a dress rehearsal and so forth until we really can do it. And I think resilience is another one of those practices that we just have to get on our yoga mat and, you know, practice. And so for me, um, actually yoga was a good metaphor because I did practice yoga through my son's illness. And I found that that's what, what got me through in a lot of ways. I had a place to go. 
I had something I could do. And sometimes when you're feeling really helpless, having a place to go and a thing to do is really important. And so I would say we cultivate resilience by practicing resilience. We get on our mat, which is a metaphor for getting out there in life and doing something. And in some cases that something is talking to a friend, you know, giving, giving yourself a quiet moment with a cup of tea. But being kind to ourselves and being compassionate towards ourselves is for everyone. And a lot of us need to be reminded to do that. A lot of us are a little harder on ourselves than we are on everybody else. And if I would say to you, you know, if you could treat yourself the way you would treat someone you loved, <laughs> you would be a lot nicer to yourself than you are. For some reason, we think we're supposed to be hard on ourselves and then treat the people we love, you know, differently. And we're actually supposed to be also kind to ourselves. Right. The premise of this podcast really is like I looked at mostly from psychology strategies for practicing for cultivating resilience and saw how powerfully in most instances they align with all kinds of practices, all kinds of ways of being in Judaism. You know, and, and that, that's part of what led me to the conclusion that, that Judaism is kind of structured to cultivate resilience on both the individual yeah. and communal well, level. And so that connection with other people, like Judaism just doesn't imagine us being as solitary individuals. We, we imagine that we live lives together. Um, right. And, and as, as mirrors and as supports and as, um, as accompaniers. Well, something I've heard you say is that after catastrophe or trauma, the Jewish people have found pathways forward, right, to reseed right. and regenerate Judaism. Right. And that is exactly what we're doing on an individual level as right. well. After trauma, we're finding pathways forward to regenerate our own lives. Um, I think of the Jewish phrase, Beharta Bechayim, which means choose life. And I'm thinking that we are, you know, we are taught. Therefore, choose life. I put before you the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life. Is at the tail end of Deuteronomy, the tail end of the Torah, the, in, in Moses's recap of what's most important, this, this notion of choice, of choosing life. Yeah. And like, it's not, it's not really an afterthought, even if it comes at the end, right? In a lot of ways, it's the first thing we should be reaching for when we're feeling stressed or in trouble, we should be reaching for this idea of choosing life. How do I choose life in this moment? And sometimes choosing life in this moment is very, very, is that simple cup of tea. And sometimes choosing life in this moment is getting out in the streets and marching. And sometimes choosing life in this moment is connecting with another person in a really, you know, face-to-face -face kind of way, even if it's across Zoom. So when we talk about Baharta Bahaim, I want to just say that um, I think you're right. It's not an afterthought. It's actually the whole point. It's what we're driving toward. And, you know, it, I think it, it appears so concisely at the end of the Torah as a destination. And it was something that was not emphasized in my, like in my experience of Judaism, I, I didn't really encounter it and study it as a text and as a mandate until rabbinical school. And when I was studying it um, and really exploring it, we, when we were in school together, you were singing an absolutely gorgeous setting to it. Um, so when I'm studying it or I teach it to other people, I frequently hear your voice um, and your English translation in my head. Can, can I, can I add, can I prevail upon you to sing that? Yeah, sure. That would be fun. This uh, this setting is actually by my friend Bacol Ruben Geller, and uh, and I've been singing it in my head too. So here's how it goes. 
I put before you the blessing and the curse. I put before you the blessing and the curse. I put before you the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life. Choose life. Therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life. You just made me so happy. Thank you. <laughs> I think it makes the point. <laughs> it's, it's just just lovely. Margo, it's a, it's a really um, poignant conversation to be having at this moment in time. We're talking in early September, and I, this podcast will go up kind of in the middle of the month, but um, I just saw a statistic yesterday that said that um, young folks um, who have a higher propensity for suicide than other parts of the population, an unprecedented percentage considered suicide in, in the summer mm. months this year because of how many bad things are happening in the wider world. So when you talk about practicing um, and, and including practicing to choose life. That was the subject of a, an, another interview that I did uh, in November of 2018 with, with Susan Levine, a member of our board of governors who had tried and thank God failed to commit suicide. And she says that she has to, she has to actively choose life every single day. Is it, it's just so hard sometimes to choose life, even though you know that that's what you are being asked to do, right? You're being asked by life to choose life. And the fact that we're here and that we need to live each day. I know in my own in my own life, waking up in the morning and saying, my son is gone, but I'm still here. What am I going to do with myself today? Was a question that I faced many, many days. You know, so, um, and I also think with, with young people that it's hard for them to remember that things will get better. That sense of perspective that yes, things will get better, they will change. That sometimes you have to wait a pretty long time for things to change. It could be a year and a half, it could be four years right. and things will change. And, and we need to, in order to survive that and not give up, we need to find small baby steps of hope that we can do any given day. Right. And, it, and they are whatever works for each of us. You can turn to the resilience literature, you can turn to Jewish tradition, like through the lens of this podcast or ritual well or, or a rabbi, but making that choice is that the small choice to take on something is one part of the bigger choice of, right. of choosing life. Right. Well, gratitude feeds into that because the, the choice to be grateful for something, right? The choice to see what there is to be grateful for has to do with lifting up your eyes, as they say in the Bible, you know, right. she lifted up her eyes and she saw there was a well of water. So, so too, we have to lift up our eyes and see where's the well of water for us right. Right. on this day. It's hard. Like sometimes it's a, it's about the middle perspective because the mm -hmm. big, you know, it's, it's, um, there are times when I pivot away for like certain strategies that work one day, they don't work another day. And, and God willing, I have enough of a, a, a toolkit that, um, if this doesn't work, then the next thing might, and then the next thing might, and then the next thing might. Well, that's why you're, you know, this podcast emphasis on building resources for people is so important because who's to say which resource is going to be the one that you need on any given day. You really need to have 20 of them on your, you know, at your fingertips to see which one is going to speak to you when you're feeling in some very specific, particular way. 
Right. They say that I think that's right. There's, you know, that observation that you don't really want to, you don't really want to try to find a community to mourn with at the moment someone dies. Ideally, you want to have that community in place. You don't really right. want to begin developing your crisis response strategies at the moment of crisis. You want to have, you want to have practices and, you know. So already. that was what my yoga mat was for me, right? I would, I had a yoga practice before Arya got sick. And then all during that first year of that very intense chemotherapy that they do the first year, I was on my yoga mat. And I remember my yoga teacher saying to me, I don't know how anyone does this if they don't have a practice. Yeah, that's right. right. She knew what I was going through and she was accompanying me. So yes, there was the human connection, but then there was also the practice. I will share with you though, my yoga practice began after my beloved sister-in-law died after a four-year battle of metastatic breast cancer. And for me, I was listening really acutely while we were talking earlier for two reasons. One is for me, there was a disruption because I have a a theology that really sustains me and nourishes me. And it's not about a personal God. And and I was saying Kaddish for my sister-in-law for a year. And I was really angry at a God I didn't believe in. You know, so there was was like this this confusion and there's disruption there. But I started my my yoga practice after she died um, for the most part. And I I, I guess I switched my yoga practice. I've been doing Bikram and I switched to one that was much more alignment uh, oriented. And for me the great gift, I mean, at a certain point I was doing yoga four times a week. The great gift is it got me out of my brain. I was, uh, the poses and the emphasis on alignment and I'm not, I do not have a ton of kinesthetic intelligence. The yoga got me to shut my brain off and stop my arguing with, with that God I didn't believe in. Um, That's right. And, and for one of my clients riding his bike at top speed is how he gets to that place. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So for each person, what works for them, like, I'm not saying we all have to practice yoga by any stretch, but we do, but we do have bodies and our minds are, and our mind body is a connected thing. And so sometimes just working the body will help the mind and we have, and and we can start there. That's right. Especially for those of us who who live way too much in, 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 in our brains, in our heads. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I want to um, I want to turn our conversation over to this our, the season that we're in. Um, and we've kind of been talking about it uh, uh, some some of it, but um, I want to turn it to the Jewish season that we're in. We're entering into the high holidays. We are in Elul. We are in the month that precedes the high holidays. This is a preparatory period for us to be doing Cheshbon HaNefesh, an investigation of our lives and our souls and our actions and to do some of the repair work that might be done, uh, that might be necessary. Um, And I wanted to hear your reflections about, you know, how you bring all of your training and your wisdom to the high holiday season. Mm, Such an interesting question. You know, as you're speaking, I'm so aware that Elul is a call to practice the whole month is a time when you call it a time of cheshbon hanefesh of uh, of actually taking stock of our of the condition of our souls we have a whole month in which to practice doing that so that when we encounter the liturgy on the high holidays we've already been practicing we're mm-hmm. already in the modality of looking at ourselves and you know yom kippur is not the first moment where we say oh wait i better check in on myself and see how i'm doing right we have a month to prepare and that that uh, is part of cultivating resilience right there, is cultivating the, the, the practice of looking within and of taking stock. 
So that's one thing about Elo that I think is really important. The other thing is, again, going back to these choices is making the choice to live in connection, both connection to ourselves and to our loved ones and to our wider community and whatever that community looks like for us to be a part of it, to be in connection, to claim a spot at this time um, of year, especially is to claim a spot in that community and say, I want to show up and raise your hand and be part of it. I think that's such an important observation, Margot. I, I just, I, um, I sometimes am reflecting on like, what are the distinctions between spirituality and religion? And I think there are a lot of different ways to make the distinction, but one is that spirituality is often like a solitary journey, even if you're doing it with other people. And certainly Judaism as a religion is, as I was saying earlier, a collective experience. Like, you know, our liturgy is significantly in the, in the third, for the first person, plural, and even at this time when we're atoning, it's for our sins or, you know, and the language is always in, in the collective. And I just take so much comfort in that. Like, this is hard work. Like, at the end of the day, I have to do my own accounting. But I, there are a lot of other people doing it also. And I, and I get so much strength from the fact that they're doing it as well. And I, I certainly understand people who say, I grew up to a certain extent where, it, you know, we went to the synagogue and it was about a performance and it was about just enduring a long service and listening to a cantor perform. And that's not what we're talking about here. I, I, but, mm-hmm. you know, but the opportunity is there to be with a group of other people who are also doing this hard and heartbreaking work and to be bolstered up by them. So, I want to say something about like transpersonal experience, the transpersonal psychology, which is to say that all of us go through certain experiences because we're human. And that common ground of us all being human and having certain experiences includes behaviors and feelings and thoughts and spirituality, all four levels of existence are, tra- are actually transpersonal. And knowing that means that we actually understand each other a lot better than we think we do. And so even when we feel alone, someone else is feeling equally alone. In other words, we can be understood. It's a transpersonal experience even to feel alone or lonely. And so going through it as a community um, awakens us to a new level of what it's like to be a human among other humans. And there is a comfort to me, for me, um, in knowing that I'm one person among many going Mm -hmm. through my experience. So even when I have a devastating loss, I know that others have had devastating losses, right? right? And so I'm not the first person to have to wake up the next morning after burying their son and figure out how to live a life, right? Someone's done it before me at least. (laughs) And probably, you know, many, 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 many mothers have woken up the next morning and had to live. And so, you know, while my heart goes out to them and my empathy is increased, it also increases my resilience, my ability to get up and to do it myself. Um, You said a word about theology. I wanted to just say, you know, I think that one of my theological principles is that we are here to accompany each other, right? That is one of the reasons that we're here is to accompany each other. And so, this idea of connecting with your community and of going through this time together is really a fulfillment and um, is a place where you can find that strength and that resilience and that ability to go forward. When you're feeling, you know, at loose ends, this is a place to connect. I, I mean, I agree completely. I was talking, my, my brother is a, 
he's he's religious and he's very active in his synagogue, but he's not like doctrinal. And I remember talking to him the year after his wife died and saying to him, like, look, at the core, I think, like, why are we here? What, you know, whatever our religious traditions, we're here to grow in wisdom. We're here to grow in love. And we're here to try to make this world a, a, a somewhat better place. You know, we're here to do justice. Um, like at the end of the day, we have to, we, I, that's what I feel like my high holidays are, is this opportunity to get really clear. What, what are the ultimate things and what are we going to do? Yeah. I mean, how then shall I live is really the question, you know, that ha that arises after you look at all of this and you look at the state of the world and you look at the state of, you know, our lives internally, externally, and you have to say, you know, how then shall I live? Right. And it's always, you always have a choice about how you're going to live the next day, the next moment. And making that choice in the next moment is a choice to create your next piece of history, right? You're going to look back on how you're living the next moment, right? You can, we have the power in our minds to look forward and to look back at the same time. And so using that power to make the best choice, the choice that you'll want to look back on with pride is something we can do. And to use the image of the high holidays, to write yourself into the book of life and to write that chapter, to write it. Yeah. This you, business. you get to write it. Right. We actually co-create our reality we we co-create it we have the pen and it's in our hand you know this idea that we are either victims or passive participants in our own lives is just not the way that i see it mm -hmm. you know i really see that yes we have choices and that means that we make active decisions over and over again to um you know to write the the trajectory of our own lives it's so beautiful. We have to wind down. And I know that you, you along with uh, your beloved uh, friends and partners, have recorded um, a piece that you, a, a setting that you wrote to an excerpt from Psalm 27, the, which is the psalm that we sing all through Elul and through the high holiday season. We, for an extended 40-day period, we sing this to, bo to bolster us. It's one of the practices, I think, to bolster ourselves. And I thought we um, will end the podcast, I think, so, so listeners will hear it as, as, as at the end, um, but let's actually talk, let's, let's, let's unpack it really quickly. Let's wind down okay. with um, your teaching on Lule. So Lule is the last two lines of Psalm 27, and the Psalm exhorts us to um, trust in God and have courage. And so the line that I use in the English part is trust that your heart will be strong. And so this is really a moment of Elul through the high holidays and through Sukkot, where the practice is to trust that our hearts can handle whatever arises, right? Our hearts have the strength that we need. And so I repeat that line, trust that your heart will be strong. And so I feel that Lule is, uh, is a call to connect with what is eternal and then to put our faith and our trust in our, in our own strength, right? In our own ability to face our lives. So beautiful. Margot, thank you so much for this really rich and lovely conversation. Um, I wanted to, to thank you and to point our listeners um, to some resources. They'll be in the, the show notes. Um, if you wanna hear more of Margot's beautiful music, you can go to this website, Mirage Trio, and you can also find uh, many pieces on ritualwell.org, um, one of the websites of the Reconstructionist Movement. And if you are interested in exploring a therapeutic relationship with Margot, she <laughs> practices through the Milton Center 
in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, um, but since everything is online, including therapy these days, she can work with folks in Pennsylvania and New Jersey according to licensing. So um, you could find her if you want to have your own conversations with Margot. And we'll also be posting um, other resources for the High Holidays, um, including a link to Lule and, and other High Holiday music. Um, on reconstructingjudaism.org on the High Holiday page, and Rich Well has a rich uh, collection of High Holiday resources as well. Love to ask you to subscribe and rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I am Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Lulehem Lulehe